Let's pray together. Father, you are indeed holy. And so we pray that you would cause us to hear the word that you inspired the author of Hebrews to write. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold fast to the confession to which we have been entrusted. Lord, cause us to continue in the things that we have learned, to persevere to the end. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to maintain soft hearts. Keep us, Lord, from hardening our hearts that we might enter the land. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 3, and we will be looking mainly at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about a famous mistake, a famous failure. Uh, last, last week, I spoke about Christopher Columbus and his uh, steadfast intention to get to the new world. Well, there was a night when uh, they had arrived and they were exploring the islands of the Caribbean. And, you know, he had these three famous ships that we've all heard about, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. And uh, Columbus was actually on the Santa Maria. That was the flagship. And as the commander... Uh, that was the ship that he sailed. That was the ship that led the fleet. And on this particular night, he had been up for like 48 hours. He had not rested, not slept in something like two days. And so he left the ship in command of the person whose responsibility it was to take over the watch when he went for rest. And that person also was exhausted. And so he did not stay on the watch. Everything looked calm. The seas looked flat, the land looked safely distant, and so the man in charge also went to bed. And pretty soon the next guy, and when all was said and done, there was one guy on the watch. There was one guy on the watch, and then the boat gently came to rest on the coral reef. So gently that no one was awakened, but the guy at the tiller felt the rudder ground. And then he gave, he gave a shout that awakened the boat. And this famous failure has been talked about for something like 530 years now. How on that first voyage, Columbus lost his flagship. If you knew, if you knew that a mistake you were in danger of making, even if the seas looked flat, even if you had been up for 48 hours, even if the land looked safely distant, if you knew if I go to sleep or if I don't stress to the person under me that he must stay on the watch, if you knew that it was going to result in a failure that would still be discussed five centuries from now, wouldn't you be most careful to avoid the mistake? What we're looking at uh, this morning in Hebrews chapter 3 is a mistake, a famous failure that has been talked about for even longer than Columbus's loss of the Santa Maria on that first voyage. 
We're looking at a passage in Hebrews 3 that deals with the failure of the wilderness generation to enter the land of promise. So to, to review what we've been seeing here in, in the book of Hebrews as we approach Hebrews chapter 3, let me just remind you where we are. And I'm, I'm going to slightly vary the way that I've been reviewing. I'm going to try to use the same phrase, phrases that I've been uh, using, but I want to suggest that there's an organization uh, to Hebrews really 1 through 4, what we've seen to this point. And I, and I hope that uh, this organization will, in fact, help you to remember what's going on. So we've been talking about how in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God has spoken in his Son. And this is the definitive New Covenant revelation that the author of Hebrews is stressing his audience should, should not let go of and revert to something like Judaism or perhaps a pagan background. They should recognize how important this is that God has spoken in his Son. And I just want to draw your attention to the way that in verse 3 there, you, you find the phrase near the end of the verse, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that phrase, after making purification for sins, really corresponds to the last section in chapter 2, 2, 10 through 18. And, and I want to draw your attention to verse 17, where it says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So I'm suggesting that there's a correspondence between 1, 1 to 4 and 2, 10 through 18, particularly on this point of the Lord Jesus making purification for sins. Look at, look at that phrase at the end of 2.17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in 1, 1 to 4, God has spoken in his sons. 2.10 through 18, the son was made like us to become our mer merciful and faithful high priest. And then the second unit of chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, is all about how Jesus is greater than the angels. He's superior to the angels in every way. And um, so, so, you know, in my summary of this, we've been saying God has spoken in the Son, 1, 1 to 4, who is greater than the angels, 1, 5 to 14. Note how that passage just before 10, 2, 10 through 18, 2, 5 through 9, look at 2, 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And, and the point here is the world to come has been subjected to the Lord Jesus. So he's not only greater than the angels, the world to come is subjected to him. And then that puts at the center of chapters 1 and 2, 2, 1 through 4, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So, so there's a, a, a brief summary of chapters 1 through 2. Uh, we must pay much, much closer to, angel, to, to what we've heard because Jesus is greater than the angels. The, the future has been subjected to him and God has spoken in him and he's our great high priest. And that brings us to chapter 3. And we saw last week that in 3, 1 through 6, I think the main point here is Jesus is greater than Moses. And, and we saw that a lot of what the author of Hebrews talks about there is the way that Moses was faithful in all God's house uh, as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And that imagery... Is, is building and preparing us for what we're going to see here in 3, 7 through 14. And I want to say just a word about how I think this imagery is working in terms of the big story of the whole Bible. So I think at creation, what God did was he built his house. 
He built a cosmic temple. Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord asks, he says, um, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. His footstool, of course, is the Holy of Holies, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And then he says, what is the house that you would build for me? And I think his point is, look, I've built my house. I've built my cosmic temple that I intend to take up residence within among my people. What is this little temple that you would build for me? So God built a cosmic temple and he puts Adam in it. And we know what Adam did. He sinned and he was driven out of God's presence. And then to, to restore the situation, God chooses the nation of Israel to be his son. Exodus 4, and 23, Israel is my son. Let my son go, Moses is to say to Pharaoh. And they get out of the wilderness and they're to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a small scale replica of the cosmos. It's like an image. It's like what we use a globe to do. It depicts the world. And God takes up residence within the temple. And then they are to enter the land of promise. And we know what they did. They did the same thing Adam did. The wilderness generation did the same thing that Adam did. And they failed. And they were not permitted to enter the land. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, but, but before we get into the passage, let me say this. The author of Hebrews has been saying in chapter 3, 1 through 6, look, Jesus is greater than Moses. So Moses led them out of Egypt, and he was leading them into the land of promise. Now he's saying Jesus is greater than Moses. He's accomplished a greater salvation than the Exodus, and he's leading his people into a greater land of promise, the new heavens and new earth. And what the author is saying is don't be like the wilderness generation. The wilderness generation experienced the salvation of the Exodus, but they were not allowed to enter God's rest because of unbelief and disobedience and sin. They experienced the Exodus. They didn't get to go to the land. And the author is saying, you've experienced the cross and resurrection. Don't be like the wilderness generation so that you can enter God's rest. That's, that's kind of the big idea of what we're dealing with here in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Because Jesus is greater than Moses, we must take pains to make sure that what happened to the wilderness generation doesn't happen to us. And the author will spell out uh, what, what he has in mind as we go through the passage. Before we look at, at chapter 3, verse 7, let me draw your attention to the end of verse 6. At the end of verse 6, the author of Hebrews writes... And we are his house. We are Christ's house. So this gets at the way that the Lord Jesus is building the church as a temple. And, and if the temple symbolizes the cosmos, well, the church is in anticipation of the new creation. So, so if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. And that new creation is going to be the cosmic temple as believers in Jesus, those who have been born again, we experience and participate in the new creation. We are his house, he writes, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now drop your eyes down to the end of verse 14, where he says, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence, firm to the end. And the wording is exactly the same in English, and it's exactly the same in the original Greek. If indeed we hold fast, if indeed we hold fast, in both uh, at the end of 3.6 and at the end of 3.14. And those statements, they form a kind of bracket around 
this unit that we're looking at. So that the first thing we need to note here is we must hold fast. We must hold fast. We, we need to be like a sailor on the ship who recognizes, I can't let this drift away. I can't just go to bed on the job. I, I've got to maintain vigilance. We must hold fast. And then look at 3.7. The author writes, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And I just want to note here for you that at the beginning of the book, he says in verse 1, long ago, dot, 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 God spoke to our fathers through his son. So since he's speaking through the son, it's the father who's being identified as God who's speaking. And, and then God, the father, speaks to the son in 1, 5 through 14 and about the son. And then look at chapter 2, verse 3 where it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So that's Jesus speaking. So God largely speaks in, in Hebrews 1. And then Jesus speaks in 2.3. And then he speaks again when he says in 2.11, uh, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, this is the Lord Jesus speaking in 2.12 and 13. And now here at 3.7, we have the Holy Spirit taking up his speaking part. And remarkably here, the Holy Spirit is going to speak the words of Scripture. So the author of Hebrews is a, has attributed at this point the words of Scripture to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father spoke those words quoted in chapter 1. The Son spoke those words quoted in chapter 2. And now the Spirit speaks these words quoted here in chapter 3. And then look over at chapter 4, verse 8. We're still referencing the passage that the Spirit speaks here in 3, 7, through 11, he, he quotes uh, Psalm 95 again in 4.7, and then he says in 4.8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So in 4.8, he attributes the words attributed to the Spirit in chapter 3 to God, God the Father, I think. And so the author of Hebrews is freely attributing the words of the Old Testament to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this shows the unity of the three persons of the Trinity. Every member of the Godhead is involved in every action of any member of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit, their operations are inseparable. So, a point of application here. Hear the words of God. As the Holy Spirit says, God is speaking. Hear the words of God. As we consider this quotation that we're about to look at from Psalm 95, uh, I want to preface our walk through the author of Hebrews' quotation of Psalm 95 with just a remark about what David is doing. Look over at, look over at chapter 4, verse 7, where the author says, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. So Psalm 95 actually does not have a superscription that reads of David on it, but the author of Hebrews is telling us that David wrote Psalm 95. So the way, the way we put this together is that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write Psalm 95, and so the Spirit speaks through the words of Scripture. Where Scripture speaks, God speaks. Now what David is doing is he is looking back at the wilderness generation 
And he's basically saying to the, the people of his generation, don't fail the way the wilderness generation did. Look what they did. Look what they did. Learn from their mistake. That's what David is saying. Now look at what the author of Hebrews is doing. The author of Hebrews has learned from David how to apply that Old Testament narrative in the Torah, in the book of Numbers that, that Chris read earlier in the service, to his generation. So the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95 the same way that David first wrote Psalm 95, to say to his generation, you've experienced redemption, don't fail to enter the land like they did. So the author quotes Psalm 95 here in Hebrews 3.7, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, today, and I think in David's day, you know, he's saying, we know what happened in the past. And we know how we're, how we're inclined to respond. We know that we're inclined to weariness. We know that we're inclined to, to let things slide. Today, if you hear his voice, do, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. And before we, before we read on, so David is commenting on the wilderness generation, and David is essentially telling us that wilderness generation, they hardened their hearts. That's what happened. Now, if we think about this, this means, and the, the terminology used both in uh, the Hebrew original of Psalm 95 and in the Greek translations is the same for the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. So this means what happened is that God redeemed Israel from hard-hearted Pharaoh and then the wilderness generation, they became like Pharaoh. Their hearts were hardened. And, and David is saying, if you've experienced redemption from your slave master, don't turn around and become like the slave master. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Now, we need to think through what happened in the rebellion. You know what happened. They, they, they get to the, the boundary of the land of promise, and they send the spies in. And the spies come back with the report, and the report comes from people who have hard hearts. The report is all focused on how dangerous and powerful and impressive the inhabitants of the land are. That's a report of a hard heart. A soft heart toward the Lord, a heart that is held fast to the confidence and the boasting in the hope, is going to be like the report given by Joshua and Caleb. You remember what they said? The Lord has given us the land. Their report doesn't focus on the inhabitants of the land and how dangerous they are. Their report focuses on the Lord. They say, if the Lord has chosen us, nothing can stop us. He's chosen us. The land is ours. So how do we not harden our hearts? Step one. Don't focus on the obstacle, focus on the Lord. Don't focus on the enemy, focus on the Lord. Don't focus on the, the horizontal, the human dimension, focus on the Lord. If the Lord is for us, who can be against us? Another thing that I think goes into the hardening of the hearts is the fact that they've clearly forgotten what the Lord did for them when he brought them out of Egypt. And, and this is going to be alluded to just shortly, so we'll, we'll, we'll put that on hold and save that for when we get to it. So 3-7, today, if you hear his voice, 3-8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
the Lord views the bad report that the people believed as rebellion against him. You, you, could, you, could, re- you could render this something along the lines of the embitterment. The, the people, by not trusting the Lord, have embittered the Lord. They have, they have made things bitter. On the day of testing in the wilderness, and then this, is, this day of testing is spelled out in verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test, and then at the end of verse 9, and saw my works for 40 years. So this, this bit about seeing God's works, I think this alludes not only to the way that he provided for them manna from heaven and water from the rock for 40 years in the wilderness, but also the way that he provided them by saving them and getting them out of Egypt. So even though they saw God's works, they hardened their hearts, and they embittered him, and they put him to the test. And, and for the author of Hebrews, look at, look at 2.4. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So with the gospel came these works of God. And he's saying to his audience, look, we've seen the works of God. Don't let your heart be hardened to your knowledge of what God has done in the past for you. Uh, now, this, this idea of, God, of them putting God to the test... What happens here? What has happened in the hearts, in these hardened hearts? I think it goes something like this. What has happened is they've come to a place where they think God is not going to come through for us. God is not going to give us that land. God is not going to, in spite of the fact that he defeated Pharaoh, God is not going to defeat the inhabitants of this land for us. And then You back it up from there to the failures in the wilderness. God is not going to give us what we need to eat. And then if we contemplate the way that we often sin, what what happens with us? God is not going to give me what I want. God is not going to give me what I think I need. This seems to be what's going on. How do we maintain a soft heart that, that, that holds fast when we start thinking this way, here's what we need to remember. We need to remember that God is an infinite fountain of overflowing goodness. He will not run out of what we need and want. To sin, let me say that again. God is an infinite fountain of overflowing goodness. Just look at the world that he made. There is no lack in the world that God made. The world is teeming with life, abounding with life. That's how God is. He is an overflowing fountain. He will not run out of what we want and what we need. To sin is to harden your heart against him and to refuse to be persuaded that he will come through for you. That's what happens to us. We're tempted to think that he's going to run out of salvation or he's going to run out of provision. Or he's going to run out of pleasure. Or maybe he's, he's being miserly with the pleasure that he's going to allow us to have. We're not going to get the fulfillment that we want. We're not going to have the significance that we seek. God is an infinite fountain of overflowing goodness. And the challenge for us is to trust him. The challenge for us is to believe he will give me what I need. He will provide for me what I want. The desires that he created me to feel are desires that... He means to satisfy in his way, in his time, 
in accordance with his instructions. And this, all this, the Israelites let go of. They put him to the test in verse 9, even though they saw his works for 40 years. Therefore, verse 10, he says, the Lord says, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. So step one of having a hardened heart is that, that you, you've closed yourself off to the Lord. Step two is that you've gone away from his ways. You've gone away from his ways. They always go astray in their heart. And then the rest of verse 10, they have not known my ways. That's the hardening that takes place. You close yourself off from the Lord. You leave his paths. You leave his ways. And so this is the Lord's pronouncement against the wilderness generation. And the, and the author of Hebrews is doing exactly what David did. David was saying to his generation, back up in 3.7, you see it there, today if you hear his voice, don't let this happen to you. And then 3.12, the author of Hebrews says, take care, brothers. So he's reminding them of their identity. 2.12, Jesus was not ashamed to call them brothers. 2.11, 2.12 saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. The author of Hebrews saying, You're, we're brothers. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, I want to suggest to you that verse 11 is sort of the central statement of, the, of this unit that goes from 3.6b through 14. It's bracketed by um, if we hold fast at 3.6b and 3.14. And at the center of it is this statement in 3.11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And right before that, in 3.10, the author says they always go astray in their heart. And then in 3.12, he tells us what it looks like to have a straying heart. 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. If you have an evil, unbelieving heart, you are going to, 3.10, go astray in heart. Now let's take both aspects of this. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I got an evil heart. I've got an evil heart. All my desires, all my inclinations, everything that I think about is, is touched by this evil that's within me, this evil heart. What hope is there? The hope is to have a new heart that only God can give you. The only remedy for the evil heart is the new birth. It's the circumcision of the heart whereby you go from some, being somebody who loves sin to all of a sudden you find, I love righteousness. I love holiness. That's what needs to happen. And the only way that you can bring this about is to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. And, and you need to believe Paul's promise in, in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the evil heart is going to be remedied by believing and being born again, being made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the remedy for the evil, unbelieving heart. And if that's happened for you, praise God, if you're born again, you now need to 
build a believing heart. And the way that we build a believing heart is we meditate on the scriptures and we consciously trust in the Lord as the infinite fountain of overflowing goodness. And we counter the things that tempt us. We remind ourselves over and over again, no, no, he is not going to leave me unfulfilled. I'm going to believe that he's an infinite fountain of overflowing goodness. No, I'm not going to believe that he's being miserly with pleasure. I'm going to believe that if I walk in his ways and I stay on his paths, I won't go astray and he will bring me the satisfaction, the the significance, the, the realization of these desires that he created me to feel. I am going to trust him. We keep reading. and the author gives us more instruction on how to avoid the hardening. Look at verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, I need to pick up that last phrase of verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And I think falling away from the living God is the same as not knowing God's ways in verse 10. To fall away from the living God, it's sort of like what the author warned against in 2.1 when he says we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. But I think falling away is worse than the drifting. If the drifting is like what happens to the ship as it gets closer and closer to the coral reef, the falling away is what happens to the ship when it's on the coral reef and the waves start to pound it and, and that coral reef is going to puncture the bottom of that wooden boat. And it's going to destroy it. It's going to be smashed by the waves on the unyielding reef. We must prevent this. And the only way to prevent it is to heed the author's counsel. Look at what he says in verse 13. But exhort one another. You could translate this, encourage one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, look at how in verse 13, he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Look back up at 3.7. Today, if you hear his voice. And then he says uh, in, in 3.8, on the day of testing. And then in, in uh, uh, 3.13, every day we're to exhort one another. That none of you may be hardened. 3.8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion by the deceitfulness of sin. So what's the answer to the deceitfulness of sin? The answer to the the deceitfulness of sin in this verse is the encouragement of your brothers and sisters. All the time, praise God, my, my wife is saying in our home, we must believe the truth. You are saying what you're saying. You are talking the way you're talking because you are believing lies. We must believe the truth. That's how we must talk to one another. We have to say to one another, you're tempted to leave your wife because you think you're going to have satisfaction in some other woman? That's a lie. That's a lie. We must exhort one another to faithfulness. You think you're going to be satisfied by something that could land you in hell? You think that's going to be worth it? We must encourage one another to believe the truth. And we must encourage one another to keep our own hearts from hardening. You know, to encourage somebody else, you've got to actually look at the situation that they're in, see the way they're doing, and recognize 
that person needs some encouragement. That takes a soft heart. It takes a heart of love toward other people to encourage somebody else. And then, you know, for encouragement to be really effective, it needs to be suited to the person. It needs to have recognized something that they've actually done well. So you have to pay attention. If you're going to be an encourager, you're going to need a soft heart. And when encouragement comes to you, it's going to soften your heart. And the, the remedy for all that the author is warning against here in 3.13 is exhort one another or encourage one another every day. This encouragement can be both negative and positive. It can be in the form of, brother, you need to believe that sin will ruin your life. That, it, it, yes, that's a good form of encouragement. It can also be in the form of, hey, I saw the way that you, you, you helped clean up after potluck. And that was really encouraging to me. Well done. Or I mean, it can take any number of forms. But we need to be involved in one another's lives. And that too is going to take a soft heart. Because you're going to have to be warm to other brothers and sisters. You're going to have to put yourself in relationship with them. You're going to have to be open with them so that they see how you need to be encouraged. And you're going to have to pay attention to them so that you see how they need to be encouraged. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Now, let's just go back to that that sort of biblical theological pattern that we had at the beginning. You've got Adam and his opportunity to live in, in, in the Garden of Eden in God's presence, and he fails. And then you've got the people of Israel. They experience the redemption at the Exodus, and they come out into the wilderness, and they fail. And now you've got the audience of this letter that includes us. We experience the cross, and it's almost like we're in the wilderness on our way to the new and better land of promise. It's almost like we're with those folks in Hebrews 11 seeking the city that is to come, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We're on our way to the new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem. And this moment is called today. This moment between cross and return of Christ and new heavens and new earth is today. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. The author, it's like the author is saying, by faith, you are one with Christ. And by faith in Christ, what belongs to him is extended to you. We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So I think that there's a a very clear structure in this passage. Uh, At the center of it all is that statement in 3.11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now what I want to do is I want to work through the corresponding um, statements and and sort of state them in application fashion because every word of this practically is applicatory to our lives. So first, 3.6b and 3.14b, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, 
3.14, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence, firm to the end, the confidence that we have in Christ, we've got to hold this fast. To hold fast confidence is not to let go of your identity in Christ. It's not to drift away from your purpose that you derive from your identity. I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm here to make disciples. I'm an image bearer of God. It's not to, it's not to fall away from your responsibility and your understanding of the truth over against sin's lies. It's to, it's to maintain a soft heart, not a hardened heart, so that you're able to encourage others, which requires love. That's what holding fast looks like. Holding fast with a soft heart. Holding fast what you believe. Holding fast your responsibilities to others. If we hold fast, now 3.7a, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, 3.14a, we have come to share in Christ. If you hear the words of the Holy Spirit, you share in Christ. If your heart is responding to the Bible, you are partaking in Christ. You're communing with him. Three, the rest of 3.7 through verse 10, really, standing across from um, verse 13, all this results in not hardening your heart, but encouraging one another. You want to avoid a hard heart, we got to be encouragers. And you got to be encouraged. We need one another. We need the encouragement that we hear from one another. And then at the end of 3.10, and that stands across from 3.12, uh, we don't want to provoke the Lord by unbelief and fall away. Now, what's the opposite of that? What is the opposite of provoking the Lord and falling away? Well, it would be pleasing the Lord and drawing near. And the author is going to urge people to do this. Look at Look at three, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we don't want to be those who go astray from God's ways because we don't know God's ways. We don't want to be those who fall away. We want to be those who draw near. And then at the middle... In 3.11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, we want to we be those who enter the rest. And here's where I think chapter 3 stands in the whole context of the letter, stands across from chapter 11, because in chapter 11, you've got this list of heroes. And if you noticed in the reading uh, that Amos did of Hebrews 11, he skipped right over the wilderness generation. He went right from Moses to Jericho and Rahab. He's already dealt with the wilderness generation here in chapter 3. And so in chapter 11, the faithful, by faith, the believers, they take the land. We don't want to be like the unbelievers in the wilderness. We want to be like the believers in Hebrews 11. There will be far more than a 530-year remembrance if we fail like the wilderness generation failed. We will have eternity to consider the ramifications of our choices today. We don't want to be those with eternal, everlasting 
regrets because we didn't encourage one another and our hearts were hardened and we fell away from the living God. No, we want to refuse to join with the generation that will never enter the land and rather join those who by faith seek the city that has foundations, the, the homeland, the better country, the new Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, make us those who hear your voice in our day. And Lord, awaken hearts, I pray. I pray that you would cause us to, to recognize how glorious you are, how infinitely able to supply all our needs and wants you are, how ready you are to respond to those who call on you. And Lord, I pray that today would be a day of salvation for some in this room. I pray that they would feel their hearts crying out to you, that they would feel confidence in you and trust in you welling up within them, that they would know that there is, there is none who can overcome you, none who, can none who can condemn those whom you have justified. And Lord, I pray that they would know that there is no, no Savior apart from Christ and that they would flee to him. And Lord, for the many believers here who love the Lord Jesus, help us, Lord, to hear this word and be committed to exhorting one another every day, as long as it is called today. Give us soft hearts that notice how people are doing, that see good things that can be encouraged. Lord, make us those who love you, who walk with you, who by faith see through the deceitfulness of sin and reject its fleeting pleasures and consider the reproach of Christ's greater wealth than the riches of Egypt because we're looking to the reward, the resurrection life in your presence. Lord, convince us that you are most worthy of praise. Cause us to be satisfied in your steadfast love, we ask in, in Jesus' name. Amen.